Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Sasha Astafiva, for the introduction to my guest today, Brian Requarth co-founder and former CEO of Viva Real. Viva Real is an online real estate marketplace in Latin America. He is also the founder of Latitude, helping building the next generation of iconic tech startups in Latin America. As you probably guessed, we're exploring a new region on this episode, Central and South America. We discussed what led him to leave California to live in Colombia, the early beginnings of Viva Real, and the opportunity and technology he sees in Latin America. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I'm glad Sasha was able to connect us. I would love to talk about your, you know, incredible career, you know, because I know you grew up in go on the West Coast here in the uh, United States and wanted to know what your initial tr- attraction was to South America. Sure. Yeah, I'm from California and uh, I wasn't an incredibly good student, but when I was in high school, I ended up doing a, my parents kind of shipped me off to Costa Rica, you know, to see if I could, uh, you know, have a productive time there. And I ended up um, realizing that I was like pretty good at languages. And so that seed was planted probably when I was about 16. And I spent a month living with a family in Costa Rica and, you know, made several trips back and explored a little bit more of the region and found that I just really loved the culture and the people and the language and everything that comes with it, food. And, you know, and, and so I ended up um, having that seed planted, I guess, in high school. And then, you know, subsequently ended up living in Latin America, which is a bit of a long story on how I got there. Cool. Yeah. I love to kind of hear as well just how you go to Latin America. Yeah. So like the way I ended up living in Latin America and making that my home for 13 years was in my case, there's a woman behind my story. I had met my now wife, Andrea, who's Colombian. I met her in, in San Diego. And I'm actually from the Bay Area originally, but I went to school in San Diego. And so I, I ended up um, driving my car from California to Costa Rica in a six-month journey, crisscrossing Mexico, 
you know, kind of camping on the beach and, you know, sleeping in my car and with a buddy of mine. And we, you know, we ended up getting to Costa Rica after six months of putting about almost 15,000 miles on my Nissan Pathfinder. And I, we sold the car in Costa Rica and I bought a one-way ticket to Colombia. My plan was to go visit, you know, this woman that I had dated a while, you know, before in San Diego. And then I wanted to continue on the journey down to Patagonia, you know, in, in Southern kind of Argentina. And a few months turned into six and a half years in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, and I ended up getting married. And, uh, you know, I, I started Viveral while I was living in Bogota, Colombia. Got it. Got it. No, that's fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about the beginnings of Viveral. What was the opportunity that you saw in the insight? And I guess what led you to actually starting and thinking that this could actually be a real business? Yeah, I mean, like most businesses and good, good, you know, good businesses, they solve a problem. I had a direct problem, which was at the time I was living in Colombia and, you know, I was kind of shacked up in this like pretty kind of crappy living situation. I was staying at a, uh, you know, like a little kind of, you know, crappy hotel, uh, motel. And uh, basically, you know, I needed to find a place. And so I, you know, I did the classic thing at the time, which was, this is 2004. I opened up the newspaper and I started looking for for, for properties because there wasn't really much information online at that point. And I ended up contacting a real estate agent and uh, the real estate agent met with me in like a little cafe and pulled out of their briefcase. They had a piece of paper when I described what I was looking for. And you know, they, they reassured me they had the perfect property for me. And as they pulled out the briefcase, you know, a sheet of paper with a bunch of property listings and told me that the property I was looking for was on this list. I said, that's great. Let's, let's check it out and see what, what's there. And they proceeded to charge me money to access the information. And so so there was a paywall on the, the data and what I, what I, you know, I reluctantly paid the money. I didn't have a lot of other options. I was living in this crappy place. And so the first property I visited already rented the second property too big. And I ended up wasting an entire day. And shortly after I came across a case study from a company called Mercado Libre, which is, you know, it's a $60 billion plus market cap company, uh, kind of a mix of eBay and Amazon in Latin America. And there was a, a Stanford case study that I read. And I thought, why isn't there, you know, a kind of a real estate marketplace uh, for the rest of LATAM? And that's when I, you know, kind of had the idea to start, you know, aggregating the data and trying to provide uh, you know, a marketplace for people looking for property. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And did you come, because I've spoken to founders that do come from tech backgrounds and some that don't, did you come from a technology background when you were thinking about starting this company? My, my only exposure to kind of tech was when I was 19 and I dropped out of school at San Diego and I uh, worked at a tech startup for six months in a very glamorous telemarketing role. And so I, I'm not, I don't have a tech engineering background, but I was exposed to the kind of the startup of life uh, early as a 19 year old and you know 2000 and you know 99 2000 and so you know I quickly realized that you know that this is something I'm interested in I did go ended up going back to school and finishing my studies because when I dropped out, my parents cut me off financially and I was just like, you know, I, I was kind of broke and working, you know, this little low paying job that was pretty, not a lot of fun, um, but I did enjoy the experience. And uh, after finishing school, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to build something and I knew I was interested in, in kind of tech. And, you know, that's when I found myself in Colombia. I didn't start off just immediately building a tech company. I first had to pay the bills when I decided I wanted to stay longer in Colombia. So my first job in Colombia was actually uh, teaching English. I started an English school, which essentially paid for my, you know, my extended stay. And that's how I actually met my co-founder. Uh, I was teaching uh, English class at a stock brokerage and I had overstayed my visa to, to be in the country. 
And when I was at the immigration office getting ready to pay a fine for overstaying my visa, I saw a, there's a guy named Thomas, a German guy. I saw his German passport. And at the time I had a student that wanted to learn German. And so I kind of just casually asked him if he wanted to teach some German classes. And he had more, a little bit more of a, a tech background. And we, you know, kind of dropped the whole like language lessons. And we both started kind of vibing on some ideas of some potential tech problems that we wanted to solve. And that's when we kind of first kicked things off with our first business, which is not the most recent endeavor that I had uh, that we recently sold. It was uh, it was a web, a web business that we, you know, we were building websites. Cool. No, that's awesome. And I would love to just as well, since you started building, you know, companies in, you know, Latin America, you know, on this show, we mostly focus on the United States landscape. And, and also, you know, with folks like Sasha, we also talk about some of the, the European landscape. We haven't really talked much about Latin America. And I would love to know, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, what are some of the differences or things that you should take into account in Latin America that you maybe that you normally just wouldn't even think about in the United States when starting a company? Sure. I mean, we can start as simple as something like, you know, me having an issue, you know, not being a Colombian citizen trying to start a company there, you know, that, that right from the gates, like I couldn't even open a bank account. I couldn't even register a company. And so, you know, that's more of a traditional kind of like a foreigner problem of going to another country. But I would say that just the overall kind of like bureaucracy that exists and the difficulties of, I mean, as an example, you know, renting an office was super hard, you know, getting, a, I needed a co-signer for my office. And so there's just many kind of variables, but I think that the reason why Latin America is an interesting opportunity is because there's so much friction in everything that you do, which I think we take for granted kind of the thing, a lot of things just seamlessly work or, you know, function a little bit more efficiently and effectively in the States. And so I, I actually, I think that, you know, there's an expression in Brazil, which is Brazil is not for beginners. And the reason why they say that is just because there's so much red tape, so many complicated things, you know, from labor laws that are more complicated to, um, you know, you know, tax you know, code and like, you know, the amount of hours you need to spend doing your taxes, it's like 10x of like, you know, another country. So yeah, I mean, it, it basically is not to discourage everyone listening that's thinking about starting a business in Latin America. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, significantly harder in some of those kind of, you know, the aspects of like just logistic wise and, you know, operationally. But I think that that also presents an amazing opportunity because given this, these greater frictions, you also have a lot more, you know, problems that are, uh, you know, able to solve. If you take any sector, education, banking, real estate, all of those sectors are huge sectors and they're the NPSs of the companies that are incumbents and traditional businesses that have been around for a hundred years and sit on top of the kind of the world, so to speak there, you know, there, there's just an awesome opportunity to go in and just redesign and rethink those businesses from a tech first standpoint. And so that's something that I think uh, it's maybe harder in some ways, but it's kind of like a locomotive when you get going, if you can kind of get past the threshold of like, you know, some traction and scale, I think it's harder to disrupt because there's just, you know, there's, you can, you can be a strong kind of uh, incumbent quicker because there's less people maybe playing. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like it's a lot tougher. And I appreciate you giving some examples in terms of launching a company and as well as just you know, making uh, maybe your product frictionless, but knowing that there's a ton of friction, that is also a symbol of opportunity. And it means that you can also maybe develop a moat, a true moat or a true, you know, competitive advantage over other companies and especially um, incumbents and really show that your value proposition is actually quite different and actually quite unique to in, in terms of, you know, against versus 
incumbents or some of the big heavy hitters. I'd love to know, you know, you know, when you were starting Villarreal in the early days, how you approached to building your team. I know Sasha was actually talked in the show on our episode of how you were able to recruit her, but I would just love to know just how you thought about this when you were growing your business. Yeah, actually, that's one other challenge, right, in Latin America is that there is less number of people that have done what you want to do before. And so you're not pull, you're not pulling from a pool of like super season, you know, third, fourth time founders or execs that have gone from, you know, zero to one and then to a hundred. And so I think that definitely makes it, you know, challenging. And so I think that, you know, in the early days of what we did, when we were starting our business, first of all, this is, you know, I, I essentially launched the business in 2009 and the, the tech ecosystem was, it was nascent. There was not a venture kind of, you know, model that was very common where there's, you know, a ton of VCs running around and angel investors and, you know, operators that had scaled and sold their business and are reinvesting back in the ecosystem. That's starting to change now. But in, you know, when I started, that was, you know, it was very, an early kind of iteration of, of the ecosystem. So what I learned and what I was able to do, first of all, I was very bootstrapped and very, you know, we didn't raise any money, not by choice. It wasn't a, a situation where we're like, oh, let's just, let's not raise money now. You know, let's wait. And until we have like better, you know, metrics and we can go out and raise a big round. Literally, I just couldn't raise any money. So like I just got rejected 30 times, you know, as I was talking to investors and, you know, there just wasn't an ecosystem. So, you know, I think that that was very, it restricted me in terms of the talent that we could bring on in the early days, right? Like Sasha joined pretty early, but, you know, by the time she joined, we had raised, you know, a modest amount of, uh, you know, a series A, we'd raised about three and a half million dollars. I think it was 3.7 million in our series A. And, you know, but we had been at it for many years. And so, you know, kind of Sasha was one of the first kind of hires that we made that was like, you know, had an incredible background and had some, you know, great, great experience. And it just was like whip smart. And so, you know, not that the people we hired in the early days weren't smart, but it was just like the first time everyone was doing this, right? Or like, People came from completely different industries and the concept of what a tech company was just foreign to everybody. And so that was the struggle we had in the early days. And so it wasn't until we raised some outside capital that we could start thinking about, okay, now that we have a little bit of money, like let's not try to just maximize like, you know, hiring people that'll just like be crazy enough to work for us at this moment. And, you know, I would say that was the way we approached in the beginning is that we really didn't hire, you know, the, the highest profile people in the beginning or the, you know, the best, most experienced engineers. The people that built our prototypes were like students at the university that had never worked at a startup. So like, that was the kind of talent that we, you know, leaned on in the early days. And, you know, it's not that I didn't want to hire the most experienced or the best people that had built things, just we didn't have any money. And we also didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And on the fundraising front, you know, were you first targeting when you were thinking about fundraising, were you targeting like local partners in Colombia or other countries in Latin America? Or did you target like Silicon Valley VCs? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you all of the embarrassing things I did when I was trying to raise money for like multiple years that like, just was fell flat on my face, right? You know, I mean, I would go to LinkedIn and just bomb everybody I could with like, you know, messages. I mean, we were starving, right? So like, we're just sitting there not having, you know, any, you know, much of a network, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to a top school that has like a huge network connected to it. Uh, and I hadn't been living in the US for, you know, a while. So I think that like a couple of things that kind of got us in the right direction was I did have a college roommate who, you know, where we were good friends, roommates in college. And when he was in college, you know, he ended up with another roommate, they worked on a business plan. And I kind of was right there living with them. And 
I decided to chase the girl uh, down in Colombia and they went off to London and built a company. I mean, so we kind of split paths. They successfully, you know, bootstrapped the company and then they raised a few million dollars and then they sold it for fairly good size exit for a 27 year old. And so they came into a bunch of cash. And when they came into a bunch of cash, you know, they were 27 kind of at 11 a.m. sitting around their pajamas, kind of think what they want to do with their lives because they just have all this money. They had this money and they just, you know, exited the business. And so I was able to persuade my friend James Gray to come down to, to Columbia at the time. And he kind of dropped in. And, um, you know, at the time I was kind of financing the business. I had built a company before that, which we were using the small revenue from that business to finance the transition into a new business. And that was the capital we had. And, uh, and then like me, my dad, um, you know, like, you know, we would scrape together 5,000, 10,000 bucks a month. And James came in right at the time when we were like really struggling. It was, you know, kind of 2007, 2008, you know, financial kind of global crisis and, and, you know, the real estate kind of, you know, fiasco. And he ended up writing a very large check. It was a, I can say it was a $250,000 check, you know, wired the money to us in Colombia. And so that was kind of a, the saving grace for us in the beginning. And that gave us enough money to transition our former business of building websites into the real estate marketplace business. And so that was the, that was the initial capital we got. But even from then on, I, I was, you know, I was trying to scrape money from anywhere I could. The next kind of professional capital that came on, you know, I, I did alongside the 250K, I, I was, you know, quickly after I raised some money from, you know, a couple friends of mine, a couple angel investors that were, you know, successful entrepreneurs in Colombia, like just really a mix of a lot of people. But the turning point for me was when I was able to bring on two different angel investors. There was a, a guy by the name of Simon Baker. Simon Baker was the former CEO of the exact same business that I had built, I was building. And so he had left this company called REA Group, which today is a $10 billion market cap company. And I had been trying to harass him for two and a half years to get him to invest in my company. I had stalking him on Skype. Uh, I mean, like, you know, I, I basically, the way I got a hold of him was I sent him a message on Facebook in 2008. And I was like, hey, I see you left a CEO. I see you're going to be at this conference. I'm going to be at this conference too, which I wasn't, but if he responded to me, I would go to the conference. And so he surprisingly responded to me that he would go to the conference. I then confirmed, bought a ticket to go home because it was in San Francisco near right where I was, you know, my parents were. And I basically went him, met, met him at a cafe and uh, basically I pitched him. We met a couple of times and I pitched him in the second meeting and he was diligently taking notes and he... Uh, you know, at the end of the conversation, he asked how much I was raising and at what valuation. I took a big gulp, told him I was raising a million dollars at a, you know, a six million pre. And this was in the middle of the financial crisis. We had a piece of crap, you know, vivoral.us website, what didn't have a .com. And he proceeded to, in a in very direct fashion, look up to me, look back at his notebook, look at me again, slam his notebook shut and say, well, this has been a fun meeting. And uh, he essentially just kind of got up and left the meeting. Me being a very rookie, I, I literally was on his voicemail like 30 minutes later. Hey, Simon, how about, how about a 5 million pre or maybe a four? You know, so I was basically just kind of des desperate. That was in 2000, I think, eight, 2009. I, I maintained contact with him for several years. And then in 2000, uh, I think 2010, 2011, I ended up finally just inviting him to come to Brazil and hiring him as a consultant. And he came down and a few days before he arrived, I looked at my co-founder and said, how are we going to pay this guy? We don't have any money. And so we put together a conference and this conference was basically 
him as a speaker. And so we marketed him to all of our potential customers, which are real estate agents. And they attended the conference. We charged money for the conference. And then when people showed up, he spoke and, and you know, the conference is about marketing trends for real estate. We made money on the event. We paid him with the money from the event. And then we got 50 new customers from the event. And when he saw that, he was like, man, these guys hustle. And he, he ended up wiring us $100,000 uh, kind of the, the week after. And then he became a, a highly active and inc incredibly valuable investor for us. And then the other investor, you know, not to be too ex overextended here on the time, but an important person in my journey was a guy by the name of Greg Waldorf, who uh, was the first investor in Trulia, which is a, you know, a successful online real estate you know, business that was sold to Zillow for 3.5 billion. So Greg ended up uh, coming in right around the same time as Simon. And he ended up the kind of the two of them changed the trajectory of, of our company because Simon brought an incredible operating capacity in the business because he had built and scaled that business in another market, you know, growing it tremendously to hundreds of millions in revenue. Um, and so he had the playbook. Greg was a, an incredible advisor in terms of just like how to fundraise, how to structure you know, your first hires and how to, you know, recruit and just general CEO coaching. And so the two of them were the kind of the first, I would say, professional investors uh, to get behind me and, you know, really help me. And from that point on, you know, I suffered a lot of rejection before that uh, fundraising just came a lot easier to me. First of all, it's it's really great to hear just how you, of course, were never afraid of rejection and you were just super persistent and eventually you were able to bring on Simon and Greg and not only as investors, but they actually had significant impacts in terms of the business and the direction that you moved towards. I'd love to also just talk as well, focus on Viva Real as a business and how you just thought about international expansion into other markets. In, so you started in Colombia, but how did you think about just expanding to other markets in uh, Latin America? Sure. So actually, I had read that case study from Mercado Libre, which is, you know, there are, for those that don't know, they're all in all of Latin America. And so I had originally thought that we should, you know, kind of emulate what they were doing. I quickly realized how complicated it was to be in all these different markets. So we started off with this kind of pan LATAM approach. And then we kind of moved into the Amazon approach of like, let's pick off high value markets and focus on those that have, you know, that have the biggest potential. Quickly, we realized that the Brazilian market, when you took the state of Rio de Janeiro, which is it's not the largest state. Sao Paulo is the largest state, but it's a sizable state. And you took the number of potential customers in that you know, geographic region and you compared that with the entire country of Colombia, there was, lar it was a larger market, that state. And so we decided to go AAB, all about Brazil. And that was the time when we, instead of expanding, we actually decided to focus in on just one market. And so I moved to Sao Paulo in 2011 and, you know, sold my apartment, kind of put all the money I had into the business and dropped into Sao Paulo. And then I will add to that in terms of like a framework for thinking about market expansion. In these marketplaces, you know, you need, you need liquidity in these marketplaces. You need to match supply and demand, you know, and for those that don't know Viva Rao, we're, we were basically, you know, or the company is a real estate marketplace that connects buyers and sellers. Um, it's a bit more of like a classified type website. It's an advertising business. And so, you know, when we were thinking about expansion, you know, we started in Sao Paulo, which is the largest market. And you need, in order to, to generate value for, you know, both sides of the marketplace, you know, you start like, you know, you've got the chicken and egg problem. And the way we solved the chicken and egg problem was, you know, first of all, we went to all the real estate companies that had all the inventory and we said, we want your inventory. And they're like, why would I give you the inventory? You don't have any people looking for real estate. And so we struggled with that initially. So what we ended up doing was we ended up basically going and building a little kind of robot that basically would go to our customers' websites, potential customers' websites, scrape the inventory, 
upload it to our website, and then we would, you know, send them the, the leads that were generated. And in the first kind of, I remember when we did this in the first kind of, you know, couple uh, months or, you know, at one point we started getting real traction in Google and we started having all this inventory and it was, you know, the search engines were, were starting to hit it. And overnight we went from like zero to 30,000 visits just like very quickly because we had a lot of inventory. And I remember poor intern that we had at this point, we had kind of split offices. We were still in, in Colombia uh, with our main office and we had one person on the ground in Brazil. And I remember getting, we, we'd get a phone call. I would, I bought a Skype in number that would, you could call in just to, you know, to Sao Paulo locally. And it would, it would route the call over Skype to an intern who was Brazilian that we brought from Brazil to our office in Colombia. And in his first week of, of his internship, it was crisis management because we would get these very angry, upset customers calling, you know, cussing us out. I never gave you permission. I'm going to sue you, you know, for putting on inventory. And we had to write this script that would flip them into a trial account because we would say, listen, just take, think about it for a second. You're calling us because you have customers wanting to buy your properties that you, you have to understand, like we're generating value for you. And so we would then convert them into free trial customers. And, and then we would, you know, get them, you know, they, we, they would have their email address and they would, you know, we would send them the leads. And so that was how we kind of got the initial liquidity going in the marketplace. Fast forward to answer your question about expansion, which, you know, Brazil is a very large market. If you think about it in terms of like geographic, you know, coverage, you've got 17 cities with over a million people, right? So once we had the, the flywheel going in Sao Paulo, we had enough inventory, we had enough traffic, we were able to start generating real value for the, for the real estate brokers. We ended up doing test mar testing, going into other markets. So we would do the free trial conversion, the same. And the way we decided which market we would focus on, and when, when people think about expansion in Latin America, you don't need to be thinking about it from a country standpoint. It's actually a city business. I mean, the concentration of economic value is you know very densely located in these large cities. They're mega cities. So we would we would draw on a kind of two by two classic kind of like McKinsey you know you know two by two. We would have at the bottom size of the market at the the top you know competition, and we would basically plot on a graph which cities made the most sense. Sao Paulo, Rio at the top, most competitive, largest markets, and then we realized that. Belo Horizonte was a city that, you know, is a, a secondary market, but, you know, f 4 million people, relatively, you know, more wealth there than other parts and low competition. And so we ended up prioritizing that market. That's where we launched our first kind of, uh, kind of, you know, satellite office. And so that was the framework we use in terms of, mar of, ex of, of expansion was just that little framework for, for thinking about how to prioritize market. And then how we did that is another, another conversation. No, I really appreciate you sharing all of that, especially because it's a classic, of course, for, for any marketplaces, it's a classic chicken or the egg problem. And how do you get supply and demand on board? And so scraping the data from the supply side and then generating demand that way while giving value to supply almost instantly from you know zero to 30,000 hits. I mean, that's that's really impressive. And that's also interesting too, how you think about market expansion in terms of cities versus countries. I never thought about that. And so that's really fascinating too. So I'd love to also learn, you know, about what you're currently working on with Latitude and how that came together. Sure. So I actually transitioned from CEO of Viva Real to chairman and we, you know, we merged the company a couple of years ago. I, you know, I, I, I kind of led the merger process and then became the chairman of the combined company. And so I was not in an operating role for a couple of years. And I had started doing some angel investing kind of by accident because a lot of other founders would reach out and say, hey, I want to 
hear about how do you fundraise? Like, how did you, you know, share with me this experience? And so I ended up kind of just giving, you know, some feedback to other founders and helping them. And I really enjoyed that process. And I was smart enough, I guess, or lucky enough, probably is a better way to describe it, to throw a few checks into some of those companies that I would, you know, give feedback and try to help with things like fundraising and team building and things like that. So when I ended up, um, you know, kind of doing that, I got a little bit of a taste of what it would be like, similar to what Greg and, and Simon did with me, right? Where they were able to give me the shortcuts and, you know, help me, you know, I remember one time I called Simon because one of our competitors bought, you know, a data company that we received a lot of data from. And I was worried about, you know, them cutting us off the the data supply off. And I called him up and, uh, you know, he's Australian and he said, you know, you know, Brian, can I, can I go back to bed now? Because I woke him up in the middle of the night when I called him and uh, basically said, you don't need to worry about that. Like, if you do that, this is going to happen. And so there's just this accumulative knowledge that you get when you're, you, you've been executing and, and, and operating. So basically the inspiration behind Latitude or Latitude is, you know, we, we, during the pandemic, we started, I started having conversations with other, you know, other founders that, you know, early stage I would reach out and look for advice. And I ended up just kind of realizing that a lot of the advice that I was giving was applicable to many companies. And so what I what I started doing along with two other co-founders who were also interested in solving kind of the early stage, you know, challenges and supporting early stage founders, you know, we love founders, we love helping them. We we ended up kind of assembling a small team and we, you know, by kind of you know organically, we we met all these great founders and we decided to put them all together. And so we created this kind of digital community, you know, remote community where we started lining up a few sessions. Like I would teach a session on a topic. Then we would call, you know, Greg, Greg did a, a session. We, we would have other people that we knew in our network that would, you know, would teach a session on everything from sales, marketing, product engineering, PR, fundraising. And we found these 40 entrepreneurs that were building startups in LATM. And we decided just to create a bunch of value and build a lot of social capital by helping them. And funny enough, I was just so impressed by the quality of founders that I ended up just writing a bunch of checks too. And so I was like, okay, like, here's my advice, but like, will you take my money too? So I think in the first couple of weeks, I did 12 checks of startups. And then I was like, all right, well, you know, I talked to Gina and Yuri and, and, you know, and in our team, you know, and and Tommy, who's helping with a lot of the, the finding the companies. And, you know, I'm like, we should tell their people about these companies. These companies are awesome. Like, what, like lot, not everyone knows about these companies because we saw them early. And so what we started doing is we started reaching out to other people. And essentially, I decided to host like a demo day online. I didn't really know it was becoming a demo day. It was just like a way to kind of showcase some of the companies and, and share it with my friends. And then word got out and 97 investors showed up uh, from, from 12 countries. And, you know, subsequently... Following that, term sheets started flying. A few companies got a little bit of funding. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. So in a nutshell, what Latitude is, is, and we're still refining what the business model is. We did this for free. We didn't take equity. You know, we will likely, you know, raise a vehicle and then start investing in some of these companies. Uh, we haven't refined the model yet, but we have just insane deal flow that's coming our way. And we, we want to get our hands dirty and help them. So, you know, essentially what we're building is I would describe it as it's if Y Combinator and Angelus had a Latin baby. Yeah, it seems like as you describe it, it's almost like the gateway to Latin American countries from investors that are maybe outside Latin America. I mean, you mentioned the 12 countries in the demo day from other investors being from. So uh, that's how at least just, you know, hearing you talk about it, that seems really exciting and very, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited about it also. We think that there's, we're really impressed by the founders and we think we can curate 
and, you know, be a great source of, you know, following investments for the top funds locally and, in, you know, in the Valley. Now, when you think about companies joining Latitude, are there specific sectors that you like to focus on? And also, I guess, as an angel investor as well, would you consider yourself more of a generalist or do you have specific themes? I have a few sectors that I understand well, but I basically invest in any kind of, you know, tech driven company that's, you know, not like outside of the, you know, it's software as a service, prop tech, fintech, you know, marketplace businesses, you know, those are kind of the wheelhouse, but I, I don't invest in biotech or things like that. I don't understand. So I don't have to be like an expert in the topic, but you know, I have to judge if I, you know, if I can't have a five minute call and then, you know, re-explain it to someone else, you know, I think that's a good test anyway for, for, you know, an investment. It's got to be clear and, and, you know, communicate it clearly. But I would say that uh, I tend to do most things. I've got about 50 something companies in the portfolio of my angel investments. So it's pretty like, you know, across the board. Geographically, the, the breakdown is Brazil is about half. Colombia is probably 30% because I just have a good network there. And then Mexico is probably, I would say 15%. And then, you know, the rest is kind of a handful of other countries. It'll probably come down to like 35, 40% Brazil and then the rest of LATAM, Spanish speaking LATAM, and it'll get bigger in all those other countries as we kind of, you know, get more involved in the, in the, in the ecosystem. So has it been harder finding conviction within founders since you've had to meet with them remote during COVID or have you always met with founders remote? It wasn't the first time that I've done investments without meeting founders. Uh, so before that, I've been living in the US for a couple of years. So most of the investments I've made are in Latin America. And so I would say before, before pre-COVID, I had been still making investments like over Zoom already. Like it wasn't a new thing for me, but obviously like we've refined our process much more. And it's just like, in fact, I just like it. I, I, now I think it's like a good way to, you know, to really just streamline the process. So yeah, it doesn't really worry me. And I, and I like the kind of the online, you know, remote work has just grown on me in general over the last six, you know, nine months. You know, because we have listeners that are based in the U.S., some of them are, you know, investors in the U.S. in focus on the United States market when it comes to um, investing in companies. What would you say for folks that maybe aren't exposed to Latin America that you think that maybe is one or two of maybe things that are overlooked when it comes to Latin America or one maybe that's not in the ecosystem doesn't think about that maybe they should if they're considering investing in Latin America? Yeah, I would just say, I mean, if you think about it, the region, if you look at it, like take a market like India, India is an enormous market, but you have like a lot of complexities around language and, you know, the regions are very, it's very complex. And the market size of Latin America is twice as large as India, yet it receives half of the amount of venture funding. So if you, if you think about the, from an opportunity standpoint, you know, in terms of like supply of startups, market opportunities, you know, it's, it's quite attractive from that standpoint, right? Just, just on the numbers, right? If you look at size of the market, you know, and if you look at the evolution of the ecosystem, it's probably, you know, given that the capital, you know, the, 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 the volume of dollars going in is, is half of India, it, it's just, it's just, it's further behind, right? So I would say that the competition for really early stage deals like pre-seed and seed is it's less competitive. And the existing investors are, first of all, there's some amazing existing investors, but I think that the volume of existing high quality funds is very small, right? Compared to the US. So, you know, where Latin America has like, you know, a limited number of investors with a lot of experience that are you know, on fund five or six that have had a few exits and been really successful, the cycle is just early, right? 
So I like it from that standpoint because, you know, there, there's just a, a less efficient ecosystem and, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of companies being built and then not a lot of investors chasing those companies. So of course there's a couple of investors that are like really strong and they have, and they see most deals, but uh, I think there's just an opportunity to carve out an amazing, you know, kind of position in a short amount of time. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I can certainly see on a macro lens in terms of what the opportunity is in Latin America and especially relating it to a market like India, which I really appreciated. I would say, what is one thing that you would change about maybe the fundraising process or venture capital? Yeah, I think that from the founder's perspective, I think the volume of time and you know energy that's put into it is is exorbitant. It's a distraction. And so yeah, I mean, I, I think that getting the process down into a much shorter, kind of more efficient, more transparent process, like I think that, you know, and this maybe applies to both sides of the marketplace here from the investor's standpoint and the founder standpoint. I mean, I think that like investors are notoriously bad at like, you know, given the nature of venture investing where you like don't want to say no to a company you know, maybe you don't have, maybe the, the investors don't have conviction uh, yet, but they like it and they think it's an opportunity and they want to have optionality. You know, I would love to see an ecosystem that has one more conviction from an investor standpoint, two, just more transparency on where you are in the process and like what the process is. So that would solve the problem, you know, for founders, which I think that ultimately when you think about this problem, you should think about it from a founder standpoint, right? You know, so I think that the process is cumbersome. It's not that efficient. I think that in Latin America, we need more standardization of how it happens. You know, I've seen, you know, 5X liquidation preferences, not common, but I've seen it. You would just never see that in the US because there's a more sophisticated uh, founder base that would just like completely dump on the idea of that and then like expose the investor. So that would be something that I would, I would like to see more transparency. Of course, the good investors don't do that, but you know, not everyone's a good investor. What are the things need to be improved? I mean, I think like the speed of, of, of everything would be the number one thing that I would you know, it's just, a, it's just a big time suck for founders. And, uh, you know, that that's precious time that you need to be, you know, acquiring customers, growing your business, recruiting the best people. And, you know, that, that's something that needs to be needs to be improved. Of course, of course. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Because I mean, what I think is really interesting is that you've obviously been there on both sides of the spectrum as an investor now and previously as a founder. And so what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? It's a hard one. I don't know, like I can, Talk about a recent book that I've read, maybe like, I mean, on the personal level, let's see, uh, I read a book, I read a book that I really liked recently, that was The Courage to be Disliked. I liked that book. It was a kind of a personal, a nice reflection of, you know, it was a mix of like kind of philosophical kind of Eastern with some Western. And what I liked about it was just a, you know, for me, it kind of spoke to me during a certain time over the last couple of years where you carry the burden around a lot of different people when you're building a company and you have different investors and you've got people that bet on you. And ultimately, you know, you kind of got to do what's right for yourself and not you know, be, be so externally focused. And I think that applies to like your personal life too. And it's, so it's kind of a little bit of the recipe for happiness is like, you know, it's not about being selfish, but it's making sure that you're not doing things to please other people. And, you know, so, so I think that's something that was a personal lesson for me and having the courage to like, you know, just be okay with things, you know, someone being disappointed or, and just like, you know, learning, learning to kind of understand that and, you know, doing your best to remedy any situation where you're, you need to kind of step up. But at the same time, not beating yourself up over, you know, things like, you know, that are out of your control in particular. So I'd say on the personal side, that would be a book that I, I enjoyed. On the professional side, you know, I think that like the two books that had the biggest impact on me are 
as an entrepreneur are The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz and Brad Feld's Venture Deals. So I'm cheating on the answer because I gave two and I'm going to then do a shameless plug, which is I ended up reading both those books and they're amazingly impactful in my journey as an entrepreneur. But what they were lacking for me was a tropicalized connection to the region that I had been working in for so long. So as of you know February 2021, I'm releasing my book. It's called Viva the Entrepreneur, you know, founding, scaling, and raising venture capital in Latin America. It will be released in Spanish, English, and Portuguese. I have a publisher in Brazil. Uh, the names are different in Portuguese and Spanish, but so that the book was inspired by both of those books. And then I gave it kind of, it's not a victory lap from a transaction of selling my company earlier this year. It's more of a, you know, reflective kind of, these are things that I screwed up. This is what I learned. This is the book that I wish I had when I started. Amazing. First of all, thanks so much for mentioning those three books. And that's really exciting that you're releasing a book in February. I almost wish we did this once the book release, but next time. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. I'll send you in the show notes. You can include a link to get on the waiting list for the book. And then I can, if anyone's interested in, you know, I think it's written for like Latin American entrepreneurs, but I think that it's still relevant for anybody. But uh, yeah, the stories are all local. So do you want a quick glimpse into like the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurship in, in another country or in another region? This book will, uh, you know, will, I think, give you that appreciation. That's great. That's great. I really appreciate that. That's fantastic. So my final question is, I would say, and there's so many takeaways in this conversation, but what would you say is what, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? It's hard to say one piece of advice. You know, I think my advice is the journey is very lonely and it's very difficult. And given that, you know, it's something that requires an ungodly amount of like energy and determination and perseverance and persistence to make it work, I would say, make sure you kind of take note of like your own mental health around in the process. And I would say, find your, your tribe, find your community that can have maybe going through a shared experience and build your kind of I don't know, this is like very COVID, like circle of trust, like, you know, pod talk, but find your community that you can, you know, share with that really wants the best for you, whether that's like other founders, you know, ideally someone that's kind of been through a similar journey, because it's always hard to like share these things with someone, you know, maybe you have a friend that is really close to you, but even sharing with your friend that hasn't lived the experience of what you're going through as a founder, it's going to be hard to connect with uh, in some respects. So if you can find someone that either, you know, either is, is going through something similar or is maybe one or two steps ahead of you, even better, find your community to support you in your journey because it'll help you get through the diff- difficult times. That's a really great point, finding your tribe and finding folks to surround you that can obviously help you on the mental side because it is so lonely at times being a founder. That's that's really helpful. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. And thanks again for coming on the show. Sure, man. Thanks thanks for having me, uh, Mike. It's, it's a pleasure and uh, I'm glad S- Sasha connected us. And there you have it. It was so fun chatting with Brian and learning about Latin America. You can follow him on Twitter at Brian Requart. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. 